Welcome to the Growing With Purpose podcast. I'm Paul Spiegelman, and we're going behind the scenes with very special leaders, learning about what shaped them into who they are in business and in life. Today is Matthew Rosenberg, CEO and founder of MRAD Architecture and Design Studio. MRAD is revolutionizing the architecture industry by extending the scope of the architect, and they design products that tap into each of the human senses. Welcome, Matthew. Thanks for having me, Paul. So let's go right into that description. Uh, when you say extending the scope of the architect, what does that mean? Yeah, so it sort of came from, a, I guess, a troubled place where I was trying to understand why architecture was in such shambles and why it felt so broken and why everyone complained from all generations, whether you're in school studying or whether you're 75 years old and have been practicing. Everyone sort of had the same frustration. And so I've been looking at the industry as a whole and trying to figure out you know, how do we fix that? And what are the problems? And looking at other industries to to resolve this as well, because I'm pretty sure the solution wasn't going to come from architecture. So what we've discovered is that architects have sort of got rid of so much of the scope that they're, they've lost a lot of control and their value is sort of deteriorated a little bit. And we're going quite the opposite, where we're extending the scope of the architect to actually gain back a lot of the control. So we do the architecture, we do very unique architecture and very thoughtful architecture, but we also do pre-architecture. So we research cities and neighborhoods and we try to understand areas where there might be opportunities for better developments. And then what we do is we actually go and assemble those properties and bring in equity and bring in developers. But we actually put together the development and then we present that to our equity partners. And so this is a very unique position because we've taken a lot of the risk and a lot of the early stages out from the developer and we're just handing over projects to them. So that's been working really well. And it's also giving us a stake in the project because we retain a piece of the equity when we hand it over. Uh, then we do the architecture. And then post-architecture, we actually take it all the way through to interior design, to product development, to marketing and sales. And we do that because we want to retain as much of the narrative as, as possible. So if we hand it over to a sales agent who tries to understand what we've been working on for two or three years, it's very difficult. Whereas if we're explaining to the end user what went into this and why things are a certain way and why the light is coming in here and how you can grow a garden on your deck, there's a lot more value there. Just like if we're designing you know, candles and faucets and furniture that go in this space, it, it's an arm off of the architecture. It accentuates that brand, giving much more brand recognition, and we get to tap into everyone's memory sense in that building. So the value of that building and each product inside it accentuates each other and, and offers a lot more value across the board. Um, and through that, you know, we retain equity in every piece of this. And so it gives us a financial backing that most architects don't have, which ultimately is what's, what's resolving this broken industry. 
So when you say the industry is broken, for many of us, uh, we may not know what that means. So I, I have a great appreciation for architecture, but I don't know about the, the industry or the business you're in. How would you describe the overall problem that you guys have been trying to solve by this evolution? Yeah, so it's a common theme where interns are not paid, everyone else is underpaid, and you have to go through so many years of practice and study to even have a chance at succeeding down the road. And it's, you know, you look at medicine, you look at law, you look at tech and all these other industries that aren't suffering in the same way. And it doesn't, didn't make a lot of sense to me. So there's a business side of it that I think has been lacking. And by us, essentially biting a little bit more of the pie and retaining the equity and, and putting a little bit more risk in, I think that's giving us the opportunity to fix it because what's what's happened is that architects have removed so much of what they were doing, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. If you look at these master builders that used to carve the brick and do every piece of this thing because of liability. And it's an, it's an unfortunate situation because of, you know, the legal world that we live in today. Uh, I think architects are just afraid to, to take on too much and keep removing pieces of their scope because of liability, because they don't want to get sued. And it's really unfortunate because it's removing a lot of the financial and equity upturn uh, in practices, allowing people to pay their staff more and give them a piece of the pie. We allow our staff to buy into real estate developments. That's crazy if you talk to any other architect. Yeah, it sounds crazy. So uh, in, in order to accomplish this, you obviously have to take a, a unique approach to the projects that you take and probably turn away a lot of projects or people where you can't exert this span of control or the scope. Is that is that correct? That's exactly right. And we didn't start this way, right? We started from convincing developers to hire us. And that's a tough feat in itself, for sure. But um, I guess it, that's something that I've been successful at, thank goodness. But at this point, yeah, we have to be very particular about what clients and what projects we work on at this point. Because one, not all developers want us to feed them this stuff. The big, big groups are really not interested, right? Because mm -hmm. then they lose a bit of their equity and that's their whole position. But the small to medium guys are very, very interested in this model because it reduces their upfront risk. That's right. Uh, sounds so interesting to be able to get in that way. And then how do you convince that, uh, whether it's the developer or whoever is hiring you, that your scope beyond ownership and beyond the uh, kind of external architecture can extend into things like interior design, branding, et cetera. And do you maintain people on your team that do this, or is that kind of a virtual team of uh, freelancers? How do you make all that work? Yeah, so everybody, I've been very adamant on hiring full-time from day one where possible and not outsourcing. It builds the culture. We understand each other better. And they understand the business model. It's impossible to explain this model to someone that's in India or anywhere other than in our studio. So that's we're, we're adamant about people being full-time, we're giving benefits, give them everything so that they can feel comfortable to believe in the business model. Now, convincing the developers obviously is really the toughest part in this. And at the beginning stages, which I believe we're still in, we do it on spec. 
And we do a lot of extra work to convince them that this long lineage of scope can actually add an enormous amount of value to their projects. So yes, we design the faucets, we design furniture, we design scents and candles on spec. Now we own those, right? So we can actually sell those and market those. And that's that's the position we're taking to grow another vertical of the company and create more revenue. But at the beginning, it's on our dime. And we're offering this to them. And we're building those products through these certain projects to really highlight the brand on many different levels. But at the moment, it's on us. We hope that within a year, we're going to be able to break off these pieces as additional scope for revenue. That's right. Uh, well, and that's a, a very typical kind of business growth strategy is to give it away a little bit, build up that uh, reputation, um, get in the door somehow, especially with a very new and unique model like this. How have you been able to attract employees, those full-time staff, into uh, this unique model where they feel like that this is something that they want to be a part of? It, it is for sure the hardest part of the last five years. Uh, we have, and I'll be totally honest, we've been through a lot of people and we're tr- we try to be very open about what kind of company we're trying to create and it's still changing. It's not as if we've created a new company and a new business model overnight and we know exactly what we're doing. We're evolving every single day. And so to be transparent from day one interviewing is our strategy. Now that changes a lot when people come in and realize this is not a normal architecture studio. And we push the boundaries and we push them very hard to think outside the box. Um, so it's, yeah, it's been difficult. I mean, we're getting to a place now where the people here have been here for, you know, a year to two years, but we've also been through, you know, another 30 people that weren't the right fit. And for a small company like us, that's, that's problematic for sure, but we're finally sort of getting over the hump and we're excited to bring in new people from other industries that can really help grow these verticals. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, good for you to be able to take in again, some, a very, um, an industry that's known for operating a certain way and you sort of flip that on its head and then get people to buy into that and realize that what you tell them the company is like today is going to be different from what the company is like in a year. And, uh, I found, too, that even when we, uh, in our company that was so focused on culture, uh, on the surface, who wouldn't want to work for a a company that had lots of awards as the best place to work? But if they came from a a much more structured environment, it didn't always work for them. And sometimes you have to get in, do the work, feel what it's like. And uh, so as an employer, you're making the best choices you can, but you're never going to bat a thousand percent. Yeah, we're far from a thousand percent right now. We we do work very hard on the culture, but yeah, we get some bad reviews, and we try to look at those and learn from those. Uh, but it's uh, you know it's part of a fast-paced, evolving company that no one really knows where it's going. We all have a vision for it, but in the end, it's the people that can really you know, get in the mud and stick through the tough times that we'll see the benefit on the backside. Yeah, that's right. Well, Matthew, you've had to have learned a lot of lessons along the way. Uh, Let's go back to kind of where your journey started. I understand you're from Canada originally, but uh, tell us a little bit about um, your first indications that there may be some uh, leadership in, in your future or kind of being having this entrepreneurial bug. 
Sure. It's interesting you asked that question and refer to Canada. So, yeah, I'm from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. It's a small city. Uh, I think maybe there's 300,000 people now, but there was probably 200,000 when I was growing up there. Um, and I'll tell this joke and, you know, everyone will rag on me later, but they say when your dog runs away, you can see him running for four days because it's so flat. Mm. Uh, that, that being said, uh, you know, I think that in high school was sort of the first hint that maybe, maybe there was leadership in the blood. Uh, we used to throw these parties right before cell phones, before all of this, and somehow we were able to gather 500 people in the middle of nowhere in a big open field with a gigantic fire pit, 150 cars. And we were able to go locate this source of a place where we could essentially party in a field. And every weekend we were able to gather, you know, three, four, 500 people in the same area. And I sort of always looked back and thought, it's kind of amazing that we were able to do this without current technology, right? It was word of mouth. We talked to a few of the right people that could gather their people. And it's an odd sort of story, I guess, but it doesn't actually matter what we were doing there. It was the fact that, you know, myself and one, of, one other friend that I grew up with were able to get so many people so quickly into one area. It was very interesting. So this was something that you took on yourself. So you and a friend were uh, behind gathering this big group every weekend? Yeah. I mean, it was to party and for fun, but it was a lot of fun to get all these people. And we became known for the guys that, you know, they would find the new location of where we were going to party this weekend. Um, it's funny now. I don't think those that we called them pit parties. I don't think they exist anymore, but they were a part of my childhood and in high school years that I will never forget. Uh, I remember in college, I lived in a duplex with a couple of guys and we used to, uh, a few times a year have what we call the plex party. And, uh, and I became kind of the organizer and that, that was an early uh, indication for me that, uh, uh, either I was destined for leadership or I just needed control. Uh, but uh, to get that many people together uh, like that was really uh, incredible. What what were the, some of the early lessons you learned about the challenges of corralling a group that large? Well, one is that when you get that many people together, the cops typically are not very happy. <laughs> <laughs> not far behind. Yeah. So there was, I mean, that was probably a good sign. Uh, you know, the more cops that showed up, the, uh, the better the party was we, we took, but I think there's lessons in that there's a sort of respect that needs to happen still. So no matter what kind of leader you become or how many people are following you and whatever boundaries you're trying to push, there's a respect for people that allowed you to get there that, that needs to stay there. So I think that's something I look back on now, right? Even in university, I was studying photography and I had a thesis where, uh, and all these stories aren't, aren't, aren't to do with cops and breaking the rules, but, uh, I'll tell one more in that, uh, you know, the thesis was to, test people when you put them out of their comfort zone. So I put an ad out for people who wanted to walk around the city and go about their day-to-day -day business in, in their birthday suit, essentially. Mm -hmm. 
and I would photograph the people looking at them from a distance to see what their reactions were and see how they dealt with it. Mind you, it was in the middle of winter in Saskatoon, so it was very cold. But it was a very interesting scenario. It wasn't about photographing nude people. It was about examining how people reacted to something that was abnormal in their daily life. And, you know, all this happened and I got a bunch of photographs and ultimately the last shoot was at Walmart, right? Just people shopping at Walmart. <laughs> and again, you know, the, the police took some film, but I still had some and I had my thesis exhibit and the, the police came to the exhibit and wrote a note and were the positive comments that they wrote were phenomenal. Right. But then my father saw them and that didn't go very well. And it was uh, I think that was a big lesson that I have to understand that this these moves and these actions, whether they're leadership or pushing boundaries or, or changing an industry, they have to be done in a, the most respectful way possible to everyone who allowed you to get there and everyone who will help you get to the next stage. And if you don't consider those elements in the process, I don't think it's fair to anyone, and I don't think you'll actually succeed. Sounds like you were a little bit of a rebel early on. I, w I really wasn't. I, I, you know, these two back-to-back -back stories are making me sound that way. <laughs> I was a very timid and shy child at the beginning. Wow. Well, um, any, any jobs you had along the way that uh, proved significant in your development as a leader? I honestly think they all do. I mean, I worked everywhere and anywhere. I was a, a busser, a server, a bartender. I worked at a golf course uh, in architecture design firms. Uh, I washed sailboats in Australia. I, I think it's all relevant to who you become. And there's not really one moment that changed me, but I think all of it allowed me to begin interacting with people in different ways. And for me, that's how I've grown the business, pure relationships and communication. Yeah. Um, can you think of uh, a time when you learned something in an unexpected place or from an unexpected source? Hmm. Interesting. You know, it's sort of a day to day thing for me. And I, it's strange that I tend to learn or I try to learn on a daily basis, but it usually, there's usually a, you know, three or four or five day lapse for, for me to actually understand what I can learn from that. So I don't know if there's one in particular moment, but I, I think it's a constant evolution of, of learning through experience. Mm -hmm. How about, a, how about an, evo an emotional event that shaped you? Uh, can you think back to something that really kind of rocked you at the time? I mean, that, the, the moment when, uh, you know, when my father was not happy about the situation of the photographs, you know, I, I think he would have liked to see it uh, happen in a different way. Um, and that's, yeah, I think it was tough because I, the respect I have for him is, is greater than any. And so when you're trying to do something good and, and provocative and that hurts people around you, uh, that was a huge reflection for me that there's certain ways that I need to do things. And those are different for each circumstance, but I need to be much more careful in considering the best way to do those and how they affect everyone around you. Yeah, even if it was unintentional, um, just the impact that it had. And that's a great lesson to learn from your dad. Any other influences from your folks uh, or, you know, as you grew up that you can think back on? I mean, they were just 
extremely supportive at every stage, right? They're they're both doctors, extremely successful. My father's the most humble and uh, kind person, and my mother was an anesthesiologist, and just they were and still are just humble and kind and care about others more than anyone I know. Uh, that's something that I still can learn from. And they instilled just kindness and respect. And I for sure could take more of, you know, who they are in me and in my everyday leadership. But I think it's their, their persistence and, uh, you know, my father retired and then went back to work three months later. Uh, he just couldn't do it. So he still researches and raises money for, for cures for pediatric rheumatology. Uh, and he doesn't have to do that. But, he, you know, he still works 14, 16-hour days doing that. And I think it's a hard work and persistence that has been still in both myself and my sister that is allowing us to to get where we want to go today. Did they ever uh, try to push you into the medical arena? Never. Yeah, they they were just absolutely supportive of everything. My sister's a, a an artist who's doing very well now and I you know working in the architecture field. So we're far from medicine, but I think that I'm learning now that industries can learn so much from each other. And that's a big part of actually what my father preaches is this cross-disciplinary action that we can all learn from each other. I mean, there's no one industry that doesn't affect another. And if if our industry can start looking at other successes, you know, that medicine, tech, any of them have seen, uh, I think we can start working much more collaboratively in in making our cities a better place to live. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, as you as we come forward now, and when did uh, MRAD start? About five years we ago. We started, yeah, exactly five years ago on January twenty first. Okay, and how many employees do you have? We are sixteen. Okay, uh, that's a lot of great progress. Well, if you think about now in these last five years, can you think of a a real humbling experience that you've had where you've kind of learned on the job? Yeah, there is, I guess it was about two and a half years ago. Uh, I had a, I mean, I still have a young staff, but about two and a half years ago, I had a very young staff and I was able to bring on a bunch of projects. So we were working on them, but I, it was pretty clear that the team I had wasn't going to be able to get these projects done at all, especially to the quality that I had envisioned them. And, you know, a couple people had left and then I realized that I either had to figure out a different way to get these projects done or start over, essentially. So I got rid of the rest of the staff and essentially hired an entirely new staff that was much more competent and experienced and sort of risked it all again to be able to pay them something that they were comfortable leaving their jobs for. And that was a point where you know, we've never taken investment. Uh, I started the business by taking a $20,000 loan to take over this building on a corner storefront that we didn't need. There was two of us and we took over 5,000 square feet just to, you know, put a stamp on the corner. But there was a moment when I was sitting in the office with only one other girl that I had kept. And it was probably the most scariest and humbling moment where 
I realized it was either over and I had to go get a job or this was the start of it. And thankfully, it was the start of it. And that was a moment, a tough, another tough decision that allowed us to get to where we are today. So wait a second. You you essentially got rid. Let's go back. Um, you essentially got rid of your team uh, yeah. when you realized that that you just wouldn't be able to execute correctly. So what was that like? How did you do that? And then how did you get that next group in there confident that maybe the same thing isn't going to happen to them? Uh, <laughs> Well, I did it in possibly the worst way. I think, you know, I think we're still hurting from from some reviews from those people. I, you know, I really didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. And and I don't think I gave the right notice or did it in the communicated in the right way. But, you know, it was done and it had to be done. And I, if I look back now, I would definitely do it in a different way. Uh, not to say I would keep everyone, but I would communicate it in a different way. And and the for sure the toughest part was the moment sitting there in this massive building with one other person and the second hardest was that i had just convinced all these people to come on and leave their jobs and then they come in and they sort of see that things aren't as crystal clear and definitely aren't you know stable by any means and most of those yeah i mean it, few of those people are still here today and are leading this studio in the direction it's going. And it's those moments that define people. So it's a moment where I brought on, you know, a bunch of new people and some of those people are gone. But if they weren't tested in that scenario, then it just would have been a matter of time. So what we did get from that is a few very, very significant leaders that have shaped this studio and the future of the office. So yes, I would have changed a few things, but in the end, it's put us where we are today. When you brought on this new team, you were managed to convince them to leave their jobs and come on board. What did you do to, uh, make sure that they understood what you were trying to do? Did you uh, go through a visioning process or values or how did you create the glue that would keep this group together going forward? I mean, one, we we had contracts for really exciting projects already, right? So that that's never been the easiest part for some reason has been getting work for me. So if you can, can show someone and convince them that you actually have projects going, that's a big step ahead. Now, the rest of it, the culture, the future, the security, that was very tough because in all honesty, we didn't have security. You know, we could have been fired at any point. We could have not been able to cover payroll for months. And there's always been moments where we get close to that. But the to speak about fixing a problem that everyone has lived through, and this is really where it started, is that everybody is frustrated with this industry. So if if these people see an opportunity to actually lead an office where they would have had to wait 20 years to get in a position that I'm offering them, that's a huge opportunity because it takes architecture and the industry is so slow to get to the quote unquote top that I basically offered them a top position to lead an office that was at the ground with projects and they could sit on the director's team and 
guide the company in a way that they would never get to do for a very long time. And so some people want that and you know strive for that and wait 20 years to get there. And then these guys had the opportunity and girls had the opportunity to come in at a much earlier age and with a lot less experience than normal to do this. And that's the whole point of us sort of changing the industry, that everybody's frustrated. So we're finding people who are so frustrated and want to actually lead the company. At this point, we still look for leaders that are going to drive this company and drive verticals and create revenue and a new business model and aren't afraid to speak up on a day-to-day basis and push, push back because if we have people who are just drones and working along, it doesn't push us anywhere. And then we're leading from the top, which is not what we're trying to do. So have you changed your approach to recruiting then in order to find those kind of leaders? A hundred percent. I mean, I still, you know, I use LinkedIn a lot. I still reach out to current networks. Uh, We were advertising before, but we're not doing that so much anymore because of the one the some of the old bad reviews are not helpful. So we have to find people that we trust, that we know, that believe in what we're doing and have followed us for long enough to know that it's working. Uh, you know, when we get over the next benchmark, I think it'll be much easier to attract people. Now, we get a ton of uh, applications daily still, but a lot of those aren't the right fit. We need people who either come from tech or other industries or are just so frustrated and willing to sort of take a leap that want to come in and drive an office. And those people come from my network and our current network, typically. Now, you know, I think we're open to all other sources because it is our biggest, for sure, our biggest struggle right now and has been for a long time to, to find people that, that are willing to jump ship and, and come drive this ship. Well, it sounds like such a unique opportunity for people. Uh, And when you talk about bad reviews, are you talking about uh, like on Glassdoor or places they can look at? Okay. Um, So that's, you know. I don't hide it anymore. Yeah. Before I used to, but at this point, um, I don't know where some of them are coming from anymore, but I'm not sure it matters. Uh, You know, I think we try to look at them with clear eyes and and change and. the people in the office are allowed and really prompted to give as much feedback as possible. We're a very transparent office now. We want everyone to tell us what they want and how to make this culture better. And if people don't speak up, that's, you know, we, we give them every opportunity. So I think the current staff knows that explicitly. Uh, and there's nothing to hide anymore. At this point, we just want the best of the best. And if it's not right for some, then, you know, we try to be very courteous and help them on their next path. And if we can offer referrals, we will do that all day long. And all we want is for people to find the right place for them. Well, it sounds like you're continuing to learn along the way as well and, and uh, continuing to try to find great people, um, building the culture of your own organization. So how do you remain accessible and authentic and how do you show your vulnerability to the team? I just try to be as honest and open with everyone as possible and show them the rest of my life that I'm real and, you know, I go to the gym and I go to the beach and I do all of these things and I go for dinner with friends and they can access that and they can know what I do and know that, you know, 
I'm real and we all live similar lives and everyone needs work-life balance, including me. And I just try to be an open book as much as possible. Yeah. I, I say there's no such thing as work-life balance anymore. It's just, it's just, it's just life. <laughs> yeah. Um, and if we can share it with each other, uh, all the better. Um, because we're, we are connected all the time. And, uh, it sounds like you've really in this last few years kind of turned that corner and that's going to enable you to execute on this very unique business model that you have, which, uh, sounds just so exciting. And, 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 you know, you've sort of offered ownership in more ways than one to the, to the small team that you have, um, in these projects, which I'm sure creates a lot of pride and then loyalty, uh, to you as well. Um, so as you, as you look back, Matthew, and you've kind of considered your own journey, what would you think is the, the most important quality in a leader? Persistence, hundred percent. Yeah. Just keeping at it. Yep. And keep knocking on doors and never back down because everybody's busy. And if you are persistent with whatever you want or your vision or, or anything, it will happen. How have you been able to translate this approach into the message that you deliver in the marketplace? For example, you stand for something that's quite unique in, in your approach. Um, so how do you avoid dropping into that place where, well, we're just bidding on this next project versus we're going to have the opportunity to exhibit our brand in a way that really shows how our approach is different? Two ways. One, we've started bringing on the right people from from different industries who are focusing on our product and brand development. That's a huge part. Two, we also have, or part of one, I guess, we also have you know, a real estate broker on our team who helps us locate the properties for the development side. So we are building out these sort of post and pre-verticals uh, in a very strategic way. Um, two, I would say we we really don't bid on projects anymore. Uh, we have a very, very good client base that keeps returning. And we've been very, I was very particular from day one of who I was going after for clients and said no to a lot of work that we probably needed, but we suffered through it. And now our client base is phenomenal. I mean, if anyone looked at the list of clients that we have after five years, most people probably wouldn't believe it. And most of them are recurring clients. So we, we use them, we keep them happy and we partner with them so that they trust us and we trust them. And that helps us to prevent from going and bidding on these other projects against three or four other people, which that bidding process ultimately just reduces the fee of the architect again and creates the cycle that I'm talking about fixing, right? Because if I had a, a company that I was very interested in working with recently, and then they, I sent them the proposal and I was very clear. I said, this is our fee. We don't negotiate, and, which is, by the way, also very strange. And I think completely shocked them. And then they came back to me and they said, OK, well, we got this other bid for half of what you said. I said, OK, does it include the interior design? Does it include all the administration of construction? Does it include all of this other stuff? And they said, no, but can you do it? And I, and I said, I could do it, yeah, but we were very clear from the beginning that our, the value proposition down the road 
will make this a much more successful project, will make you much more money, and ultimately you want to save $100,000 now so that you know you can make another million, I'm, I'm not interested. It's not a partnership at that point. And so we're very clear now, and uh, you know I, I try to reiterate that it's not stubbornness, but it's just clarity in that the value of what we're providing is much different and much more valuable than other companies at this point. When, when, uh, if you were to describe a typical uh, project or development that you were involved in, what kind of are they residential, commercial? You know, what kind of projects so the audience gets a sense of the kind of work you guys do? Sure, we're actually involved in almost every program type. We have high-end spec homes anywhere from ten to twenty-one thousand square feet in the hills, and then we have a lot of mixed-use multifamily. We've got. 33 units on Hollywood, 38 units, 45 units. Uh, we've got ho- a lot of hotels we're working on now, a private members club in Philly, uh, about 80,000 square feet with 20,000 square feet of fitness, event space, restaurants, bowling alleys, hotel rooms, co-working. We have two creative office uh, co-working spaces, one right next to SpaceX in Hawthorne, which is a super exciting client, and another one right downtown LA with another actually very exciting client, and uh, you know big mixed use in San Francisco that's about seven hundred thousand square feet with biotech research facilities and hotels. So we're really all over the board right now, uh, and I think that's a good sign that the model doesn't need to be based around doing one product type. The model can transition throughout multiple areas of architecture and design. At the same time, do you sometimes get the sense that by diversifying into all those project types, you you are at risk of reducing the quality of the work that you do, or is that typical for architectural firms? I, I would say it's becoming more common, uh, but you know, our stance across the board is to extend the scope, and whether it be extend the scope before and after architecture or extend the scope across multiple program types, uh, that's our position because design is design. And if you spend enough time and thoughtful collaboration on better ways to design not just buildings but cities and neighborhoods, which is what we're trying to do now as well with some of our developments, that's it. That's what that's what we're here for, to think about better ways to build spaces. It's not about being able to replicate uh, a house type over and over. It's about making sure that technology and environment and all the things that are evolving and changing on a day-to-day basis are incorporated into our thought process and our design. And if we replicate something over and over, there's no way that you know our environment is staying the same every day. So how could that same design possibly be as relevant yesterday and today? It, that just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that, you've had such great progress over these last few years, and I'm very familiar with the area in which you work, and I look forward to my next time out there checking out a couple of your projects. So uh, i got to believe they're really cool and unique. Um, so, Matthew, as you're kind of uh, thinking about your career so far, and, um, and you do meet someone real young out of school maybe who says, hey, I want to be like you one day, uh, what kind of advice would you give them? I would just say from day one, believe in what you're preaching. And every single day from there on, there's going to be a lot of people who will 
knock you down and a lot more than will support you at the very beginning. So if you're persistent and you believe in your vision and you vocalize that and you tell people what you want and what you're doing, then it will happen. But nobody's going to understand or guess what you want unless you tell them and ask for it. So persistence and vocalization of exactly what you want. Yeah, uh, that's great. Great advice. So let me kind of uh, wrap up with uh, this little association game. I'm going to ask you just some quick questions. Just tell me what the first thing that comes to your mind, okay? Uh, The first one is to name a famous leader you look up to. Thomas Jefferson, just because of one of his quotes. Which is? I'm a great believer in luck, and I find the harder I work, the more I have of it. Ah, I love that. Uh, Name a great book that influenced your leadership style. Yeah, the Neil Wasserman uh, book about Founder's Dilemma. Good one. Uh, How about your all-time favorite movie? The Goonies. The Goonies. Uh, (laughs) All right, you're uh, stranded on an island. You get to take one thing with you. What would it be? Oh, I'm going to be corny here and say my wife. She has been the backbone for sure in great and hard times throughout all this. Uh, You're allowed. Good job. Uh, And what is something about you that people don't know? I was a very chubby child. Oh, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's funny. Um, I don't hide that, though. I think most people know it. Um, well, that that's great. You know, um, such an interesting journey, and uh, it's far from over. I can tell Matthew and what you have done. Uh, you know, a couple things, uh, takeaways for me that I learned just from listening to you today. Um, this whole idea of, you know, re- retaining control, uh, retaining equity, and I, and I mean control in the good way by expanding the scope. I love that of uh, what you do, um, the, the jobs that you take by expanding the responsibility, uh, kind of owning the whole pie, the idea that, that you choose not to outsource uh, functions that that as much as possible you want to be able to do this in-house, hiring full-time people that allows you to not only maintain control, but build the kind of culture that, that you want to build. Um, and, and understanding that, uh, we're not too arrogant in in our lives just to say, you know, here's the price and take it or leave it. That, that when you're building credibility, when you're building a business, you do have to invest yourself in the outcome. You have to give it away, you know, do some great work and then they're going to become loyal customers for, uh, for a long time. Um, you know, the, the lessons you learned um, from uh, your dad, you know, and and realizing that no matter what you do in life, uh, it's really about respecting other people. It's about the relationships that you build, uh, and uh, and the the key, probably hardest moment for you is when you had to do kind of an about face at, at some point early in your business, where you realized you just didn't have the right team, and uh, we took a a step of moving a number of people out all at the same time. Knowing maybe you didn't do it in the best way, I I believe you would do it differently today, and those are how we learn our lessons uh, going forward. But you've uh, you've learned to uh, to invest in your team and and also realize that we never have the perfect team. We're always weeding the garden. Our our business sometimes outgrows the 
the, some of the talent that we have. And as long as you're open, transparent, giving people the opportunity to learn and grow, they're really going to stick stick with you. Um, I think just what impresses me the most is just that that sense of persistence that you've had and the discipline that you've created, and the idea that you can take an industry and and actually take a very different approach. And I wouldn't be surprised if this approach that you've taken to a more holistic uh, method of not only choosing your customer, but bringing people into this business to help grow their careers is going to become a model for other architectural firms going forward. And I'm not even sure you'd even call yourself an architectural firm anymore um, at that point. So uh, congratulations on all the great work you've done and continued success going forward. I really appreciate you being on the show today. And I know our listeners going to, uh, are going to appreciate hearing your story. Thank you so much, Paul. I really appreciated speaking with you and I look forward to staying in touch and let me know when you're in LA, I'll take you on a tour of MRAD projects. Oh, that would be great. Well, thank you for joining me on this episode of the Growing With Purpose podcast. Until next time.